For Thursday, October 7th, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, experts are bracing for a new wave of resistance to COVID-19 vaccines once they're made available to children. Early on the pandemic, people felt like children were not necessarily immune, but they just didn't get sick. But that's because the overall transmission, the community level was so low. Dr. Lily Chang Emmergluck, a pediatric specialist at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and Dr. Audrey Arona, who leads the Gwinnett, Newton, and Rockdale Health District, join me to share how they're approaching the problem. It's one of many things we discuss in a special live taping of the podcast we're bringing to you this week. That's next. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. How is the COVID-19 vaccine booster rollout going? And what can we expect once a vaccine is approved for kids under 12? What are the challenges ahead in the pandemic? And is there anything to be optimistic about? Those are just a few topics we covered during a special live taping of Did You Wash Your Hands This Week? I was joined by Dr. Lily Chang Emmergluck, a pediatric specialist at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and Dr. Audrey Arona, who leads the Gwinnett, Newton, and Rockdale Health District here in Metro Atlanta. Our conversation started with COVID-19 booster shots. Dr. Arona says she's not seen much demand for them so far. We've done in the last two weeks, which since it's been available, we've done only roughly about 1,000 boosters, and we anticipated 1,000 a day. We were hoping for that. But again, you know, it's just Pfizer. I think there's a lot of questions, you know, about that and then the others. And I know that later this month, you know, next week, as a matter of fact, the FDA will be looking at Moderna boosters. The next day they'll be looking at Johnson and Johnson boosters. You know, for children, we get to see, you know, the FDA committee meet about that on October 26th. So there's a lot in the future that's about to change about boosters. And I think um, when you look at the vaccinated population that's being infected with COVID, it's mostly that elderly population, over 60% in Georgia of the vaccinated infections with COVID are in that age group. And remember, they were the first ones to pretty much get vaccinated. So I think that 
points to the booster maybe being a really good idea, especially for them right now. And I think others may not feel that pressure and need for it so soon because they were vaccinated later. Dr. Emmergluck, I'll direct this to you. What do you make of the fact that we're already giving third shots to some adults and we have not a vaccine that's available for kids under 12? The answer to that question emphasizes the reason why we should be encouraging vaccinations uh, and continuing to do so. When people ask me, why should we get a booster? You know, why, why, why don't I get vaccinated if I have to get a booster now? And what I want to say to them is, look, there's still a significant number of the population who are not even eligible to get vaccinated. These vaccines were never intended to prevent disease entirely. They were intended to prevent moderate to severe disease, okay, get you in the hospital, and death. It's done that. But what we now see, if you look at the population that's being affected, that curve of those who are most impacted by moderate and severe disease, it's moving downward because the older population, they have some immunity. It's waning. That's not surprising. Uh, so I, I want to emphasize that's the reason to get the booster among uh, the priority groups that have been outlined uh, by CDC. Uh, and uh, hopefully by us getting the booster, we're protecting the people who aren't even eligible to get the vaccine. Speaking a little bit more about vaccines, uh, Dr. Arona, I, I think you have what I would imagine would be a, a challenging job just working in one county, but you're actually responsible for public health in three counties that are actually quite different demographically, um, if we want to think about you know, socioeconomically. And I was looking at the vaccination numbers today for your three counties. The vaccination rate is higher in Gwinnett than it is in Rockdale. It's higher in Rockdale than it is in Newton. How do you approach something like this vaccine rollout in these three counties that are so different? Ryan, that's a great question, Sam. You know, first of all, our district is the largest in Georgia. You know, and Gwinnett really represents a metro county, which is, you know, they're very similar. All the metro counties are very similar within a point or two of um, vaccination rates. And, you know, the more rural that a county is, the more hesitant people are about the vaccine. And so what I found most important is to be present. I've really had to be present and listen because, you know, every community, even within a diverse county or a more rural county versus a more populated one, I mean, the you just have to hear what the issues are and address them. We have a pandemic of misinformation, Sam, and disinformation too. Um, you know, misinformation is just inaccurate and disinformation kind of is inaccurate with an agenda, you know, behind it pretty much. And so it's really, really important to convey the truth, educate people, answer their questions, individual questions. And even within, uh, you know, the rural populations uh, in the counties, there are some populations that are more concerned about their immigration status and documentation for these vaccines and how, what's being tracked. And then there's others that are more distrustful of government. And so mm -hmm. you really have to um, be there to listen. And that's what we've been trying to do to address our issues. That's a lot, sounds like a lot of work. I mean, um, you know, anybody who has ever been involved in, you know, any kind of project that tries to turn to the community for input, you know, that can mean hours and hours of meetings, collecting lots of opinions. Do you have the, the, the workforce to do that effectively while also, say, 
still trying to provide testing, still trying to do contact tracing, and then all the other non-COVID stuff that y'all do at Public Health. Absolutely. Well, staffing has been a challenge. And like I've told everyone from the beginning, you know, it's a new prayer every day. You know, I'm fortunate because I have a public health workforce that is extremely dedicated to the communities that we serve. And they have just put in hours and hours and hours of overtime and everybody is extremely exhausted. But we do try, you know, to do in little ways or what ways that we can to encourage them. And, you know, we really celebrate the wins. You know, every time a percent increase in Georgia, that's 10 to 40,000 people. That's a win for us. And so, you know, these small incremental things, you know, are important. And so, again, we just have to do that. Um, I give my cell phone number out to every single person at every presentation that I give. And because it's really important if people have questions or don't know where to turn for information, they need to have a source to do so. So I think just, again, just being present has made a big difference. And to maybe dig into uh, what you mentioned about misinformation and disinformation, Dr. Emmergluck, what are the kind of big things that you've seen and heard out there in the world when it comes to either disinformation or misinformation? And then uh, maybe not just to highlight it, um, but then, you know, correct that uh, misperception for us, if you could. You know, the longstanding uh, distrust about clinical research around vaccine, around the vaccine trial unit uh, has uh, really come through in terms of um, the conversations we've had in different settings. I mean, not just me, but there are so many people that are my colleagues, our dean president. We, we do so many different talks and uh, uh, sessions like this or just in community events, faith-based organizations. Uh, but I say that to say that different groups have different reasons for the distress. And like Dr. Rona said, you can't just blanket say it's good to get the vaccine. Um, you have to listen and understand what it is that really makes them hesitant. Who's their trusted source? And talk with their trusted source. So we we have a vaccine trial um, study right now that's targeting uh, younger folks, 18 to 29 year olds. And if you look across the nation, that age group is a tough one. From information that was shared at the beginning of the pandemic, they felt like you know uh, maybe they were. Uh, not resistant to it, but they felt like it's okay if they got COVID. And so uh, addressing that and their fears about the vaccine them itself, you know, has been a, a tough one to, to address. But we've done it because we've gotten people that's on our team that uh, have created uh, social media platforms that actually resonate, okay? And we've created different ways to reach out to that particular age group. We're, we're talking during a week that the announcement was made that Dr. Francis Collins um, is going to be stepping down from leading the National Institutes of Health. And he, over the course of the pandemic, has been a very vocal critic um, of how the response has been politicized. Um, he has said that that has cost American lives. I mean, I would open this up to, to either of y'all, maybe Dr. Arona, if you would care to reflect on this. I mean, what do you make of, of that assessment? And I think more importantly, what can be done about it at this point when it seems like every aspect of our lives has been politicized? Um, but, but this is one that actually really does, you know, have lives at stake. There is no question 
that, you know, politics has, has influenced the COVID response and also influenced people's decision for or against the vaccine without a doubt. So it's been really detrimental and it's a shame actually. Um, but I, I think what's really important to understand are that political voices in a pandemic like this are really important because they do declare public health emergencies. They do, um, you know, influence funding. But, you know, I think when they step in and start talking about medicine in general, it's just not right. And I wish that, you know, we could actually remove politics from the whole pandemic. People trust their doctors. They trust medical voices a lot of times. They trust their faith leaders. They trust their community partners. And, and I think that, you know, the way to fix this is really for people when they're making decisions about the vaccine to remove politics from their decision. I think that's really important. And unfortunately, it's going to require an individual focus to do that. If you look at um, September 11, if you just give me a, a minute to reflect on that, we had an enemy, right? The enemy attacked the United States and the United States people just flocked together to fight this enemy. And right now, the enemy with the pandemic is not you and me. It's not the people. It's the enemy is the virus. And if we can all just come together and fight this enemy, we could end this pandemic in a heartbeat if we would just do that. And I'm not saying you have to step up and get vaccinated. That would be my preference. But just, you know, do your part. If you don't want to get vaccinated, then do your part to stop the spread of this mm -hmm. because we know clearly what what is needed to stop that. And so I think that's the only way is when it's at an individual level and we decide individually, you know, to remove politics from this. You know, I think that's the only way to look at it. Dr. McGluck, do you have thoughts? I echo everything she said. And let me just say also that, you know, look at the science and the data. When I hear people bring in these misinformation, I think, Look at the science, look at what other countries that have vaccinated and what's happening there, okay? Science and data should drive this conversation. Watching the community transmissions uh, as a result of some of the implementation of the science and the medicine that we've come being a well-resourced country. Vaccinations do save lives. I mean, historically, you can look at all these different uh, examples of where vaccines that were developed uh, given to our children. People have heard me say this before, but I give this lecture to the medical students about immunizations. And I, I talk about diseases they don't even know about except to read it in a book because they don't exist anymore. Why? Because we've achieved beyond that herd immunity for some of these uh, diseases. The same holds true here. And so let us not bring politics into it. Let us just look at how do we address this public health emergency and pull our resources together to do that. That makes me think about kind of the undercurrents of vaccine hesitancy that we saw prior to the pandemic. A lot of that attention really was focused on childhood vaccinations. We don't currently have a vaccine for COVID authorized for children under 12. Dr. Emmergluck, I'm wondering what you're expecting to happen when we get there. Can we expect to see the same kinds of hesitancy that we've seen in adults when it comes to getting their kids vaccinated, understanding that there is decades of resistance to, to vaccination in, in children? Yes. So, you know, first, let me tell you, 
that the way these vaccines are being developed and rolled out for the younger age group, there's no cutting corners. It's following the same method and process that we have done for decades for the other vaccines that, to eliminate those childhood diseases I talked about earlier. Okay, so we're going in a stepwise manner. We always start with, you know, the older adolescents and we roll it on down. Okay, mm -hmm. there are currently trials right now for six months and up. People are not, not necessarily aware of that. So I don't want it to be like, oh, all of a sudden it's okay to give it to our uh, younger age groups. It's because they're already in trials. Okay, you know, I'm expecting that we will see hesitancy uh, among our parents. Um, I think. Uh, early on the pandemic, uh, people felt like the children were not necessarily immune, but they just didn't get sick. They didn't see disease, but that's because the overall transmission, the community level was so low. Hmm. Now we've got all these people, the adults, the older adults vaccinated, so they have some antibody protection. And so who's the virus going to look at? The people who don't have antibodies. And so if you look at the data on CDC's website or whatever dashboard you want to choose, you're going to see that the peaks are actually happening on the younger age groups. So our pediatric hospitals have many more COVID infections. We have many more cases. Uh, still, knock on wood, you know, we don't see that many deaths, but still there are consequences of kids getting infected. And if you look at the data, you know, I would encourage people to go to the American Academy of Pediatrics website because that data is summarized very succinctly. Um, you can see that the numbers are dramatically high in the month of September compared to what we saw even last summer. And, and, and Dr. Arona, I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective as, you know, a public health leader who is... Uh, really wants to, I'm sure, see as many children in your district vaccinated as possible. We can expect we're going to get a vaccine at some point. So for those for this age group, so what what work are y'all already doing now to go ahead and try to build that runway uh, to make sure that parents are aware and that they're actually interested in taking advantage of this vaccine when it's available for their kids. Right. Well, if there was anything good that came out of Delta, it might be that that the awareness that COVID could actually affect children um, is very apparent now. You know, parents who say, well, you know, I can get sick and I'll be fine and all that, but nobody wants their child to get sick. Um, but, you know, this is a race of the Vs. I've said that a million times. Vaccine versus variant. And in um, April, May, June, the vaccines were winning, right? But then comes Delta and boy, now, you know, we really were losing ground there, right? And so again, once the children, five to 11 year olds are eligible, that's going to give us actually more of our population to get these antibodies on board. And I would really hope and encourage parents, you know, to, to get their children vaccinated. If you look at the flu vaccine, you know, more children are vaccinated uh, than adults are. There's 68% of children in the 19 or the 2019 20 flu season six, over 68 percent of children that got uh, vaccinated from six months to 17 years old only 48 percent of adults and so mm -hmm. you know i hope that that happens here too because again they're going to be more and the great thing about this is that you can get a flu shot and a COVID shot at the same time so hopefully we'll be having the eligibility for that age group come about pretty quick and then we'll be administering both 
And I think part of the reason why there's more vaccines for flu in that age group is because that age group tends to see the doctors more often um, than, than adults do. And so that may be why, because the more visits you have with a medical professional, the more likely you're going to get pushed to or, or educated about the flu vaccine. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, today bringing you a special live version of the podcast we taped this week, featuring Dr. Lily Chang Emmergluck, a pediatric specialist at the Morehouse School of Medicine, and Dr. Audrey Arona, who leads the Gwinnett, Newton, and Rockdale Health District. I'm curious what each of you think this conversation about vaccination, specifically in children, is going to look like five, ten years from now. I'm of an age where the HPV vaccine was released when I you know, was a teenager, about the time that it was recommended for me, but it was still a very new vaccine. It was kind of family to family, a decision about whether or not they were going to get their kid vaccinated. It seems like a decade on, 15 years on, the conversation around the HPV vaccine, all the you know intensity around it has kind of gone away. Are we going to see that with COVID-19? 19 vaccination five, 10 years from now, thinking about kids. And can we wait that long for the temperature to really cool down? Well, I'm hoping that that's the way it's going to lay up. I think coronavirus, uh, which is the template from which this novel coronavirus is um, developed, will still be here. And I, I think, you know, we're going to move from epidemic to an endemic situation. And so that we will be having a COVID vaccine that's part of the repertoire of vaccines that we have to give ourselves um, at some interval. I agree with that. And um, I'm hoping that we actually even have a flu slash COVID annual vaccine. You know, I can kind of see that. That's my prediction. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not like measles or chicken pox, where if you get that disease and you have this lasting immunity, it's a mutatable virus, just like influenza is. And so therefore, you know, there's going to be variants. Um, we just, you know, we'll have to adjust to that as we go forward. And so that to me, again, I want people to recognize it is that race of the V's. I mean, we want to drive the transmission levels of this virus low enough. And the only way to do that is to take it out of circulation so it's not able to mutate. And as long as we have people that are susceptible, it's going to allow more variations to occur in the genetics of this virus, because that's what this virus inherently does. So I, I just want to emphasize, you know, for people to understand that I understand the issue about personal choice, but, you know, community, do what's right for everybody. Decrease the community transmission of this virus in its current state, and then we will not have to worry about the next variation of the Delta, which may be even more transmissible than what we are currently seeing with Delta. And thinking about those communities, you know, there are distinct segments of them that bring people together in ways. I'm thinking, Dr. Rona, about the Gwinnett County Public Schools, the largest district in the state uh, serving some 179,000 students. It's like bigger than some cities in Georgia. It's, it's mind-blowing how big the school district is. School uh, has been back for a few months now. We saw a big spike at the start of the year that started to calm down a little bit. Watching the situation play out in Gwinnett County has made me really curious what your agency's relationship is with the school district, you know, because I think one of the things that's complicated the response to the pandemic is you have different entities, say school districts, public health departments, local governments, all trying to tackle this problem and 
maybe, um, you know, to mix the metaphors, those puzzle pieces don't always fit very well together. So what is your relationship with the school district like and um, how have things been going, um, you know, per your assessment up there? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, Gwinnett County's relationships with community partners is so rich. And it's one of the things that I feel so blessed about our district is that even in our rural counties, we have the most amazing partnerships with nonprofits and foundations and city and county and, you know, officials and legislators and everyone is really together a lot on especially issues like this that really affect much of the community. It's not a new relationship for Gwinnett County Public Schools and public health. We have had this rich relationship for years. And it's very important because, you know, we have outbreaks in the schools all the time and, you know, we guide them. We never make decisions for the school district, but, but, you know, they always look to us for guidance and education and good information and accurate information, which we're so happy to engage with. Um, we help them with problems. They help us, us with issues too. We started the plans for this um, fall way back in the summer and we worked with the school system throughout the summer really to try to find ways to get that 12 and older group vaccinated even to the point where we were we were talking about relationships with the athletic directors and coaches and you know because we realized that you know student athletes are oftentimes role models for other students within the school so we thought well let's leverage that and really try to get them to, you know, be good role models about vaccinations where other kids will want to do the same. Just an example. Gwinnett County Schools um, has required masks. That has not been the case for other Metro Atlanta districts. Um, we have a question from someone about Cobb County. For a little bit of background, um, the Cobb County School District does not have a mask requirement. Maybe about a month or so ago, the uh, Board of Health for Cobb and Douglas County actually issued a formal resolution calling on this, all schools in Cobb to have masks. The public school district in Cobb has still not put that in place. So Dr. Emmerglock, you know, for say a parent who has, who is in that kind of situation, they have kids in schools, maybe uh, the public schools, maybe they're not happy with what, uh, you know, the kinds of prevention measures that their public school has in place. Um, what would you recommend they do to keep their kids safe? Parents have to pay attention. What is our community transmission looking like? You live in an area of high transmission, the likelihood that your child will encounter somebody who may be asymptomatic or mildly infected with COVID is much higher, right? And so CDC's made it up simple uh, colors, you know, uh, even the Georgia Department of Public Health, you can look at for your county. So community transmission should drive this conversation for parents to understand. And then be advocates. You know, I'm a pediatrician and a healthcare worker that uh, sees some of the consequences of having COVID infection that could have been prevented. So, to me, the simple masking, if you look at what the American Academy of Pediatrics has stated, what CDC has stated, it states very clearly that if you're two and up, and you're in a high transmission level, and we are all right now still in that considered high category, masking is necessary. Um, the other parts, you know, vaccination. If you have uh, high percentages of your staff, the faculty, the people that are eligible for vaccines that are actually vaccinated, then you got that layered down. 
Um, but it's 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 a multi-pronged approach and people have to be cognizant of that and implement that based on their particular school system. Dr. Arona, um, you know, you can weigh in on the situation in Cobb if you want to, but I, I think that this particular uh, disagreement, we'll say, between the school district and between the public health department highlights the um, limitations that are put upon every public health official in, in your position. I mean, even all the way up to the CDC, they can't put rules in place. All they can do is make recommendations. And it's up to, you know, elected officials to take those recommendations and, you know, turn them into rules and, and policy. I would imagine that that is often frustrating, <laughs> that, uh, you know, your ability to say influence personal behavior can only go so far. How do you navigate that? Well, you're right. It is very frustrating at times, sometimes more than others. Um, but I look at it as opportunity for education. I mean, I, I just really, um, much like Dr. Emmergluck said, you know, layered prevention strategies are really important. But what I say to parents, and especially even in Cobb County, and I say it in Gwinnett all the time and my other counties, is that, look, you know, once the child leaves the school, they're in your hands. So, you know, all these protective measures against COVID are equally important at home as they are in the school system. And, you know, even if there isn't a mask mandate, you can send your child to school with a mask, right? It's optional. Initially, when the when the pandemic first came out, we really needed to shut down things and to get everyone's attention and provide education because we had this emergency. But do we really need that as a society now? You know, do we really need that um, as opposed to just knowing individually how to keep ourselves and our families safe and our community safe? You know, I'm not really sure we do need those mandates, right? The issue for me is just the interpretation and where people get their information in that misinformation. That And that's one of the things um, that to me is so frustrating uh, because uh, the guidance, uh, you know, uh, and the interpretation of that guidance seems to uh, change. And for parents and for lay folks, it's hard to keep up. And so I think uh, they defer to people. They think, oh, they should know, right? But if we're not giving a consistent message in that and we're saying, oh, it's not required, well, then if I'm struggling with my child to put that mask on and I think, oh, it's not required, well, they would know. They wouldn't want me to put my child in harm's way. Then I'm just going to default to do the, you know, okay, if it doesn't yeah. work. I'm, what I'm saying to that, that's, that's the wrong interpretation, that's the wrong interpretation. Right. No, I think education and the promoting of accurate information couldn't be, you know, more important than it ever is now. I, I think also that there's a lot of common sense in this. And mm. I think if we look at this as a, you know, an enemy and we've got to protect ourselves from this enemy and we got to protect our community and our, our extended families and all of this, you know, the only way out of this pandemic right now is vaccination. Natural immunity is just not enough. It's not. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Sam, the, the pandemic started with our elderly population at most risk, mm -hmm. right? Well, now it's up to that younger group, like in, in, Dr. Immergluck was talking about, where, you know, the 18 to 40-year-olds really need to step up and get vaccinated. That's the group, right? So I challenge that age group really, if, you know, make a difference in our world and really help 
you know, stop this pandemic by um, stepping up and getting vaccinated. Conversations like the kind we have on this podcast every week um, tend not to be um, very cheery. <laughs> this is a very um, serious, grave uh, situation. You know, just this week we crossed uh, 700,000 deaths confirmed from COVID-19 in the country. Um, you know, that's likely an undercount if we want to think about, you know, the secondary and tertiary deaths that have been caused by this pandemic. But I'm, I'm wondering for, for each of y'all, where we are now, what we've learned over the last 18 months, maybe even where we're going, is, is there anything that gives you kind of any optimism about our current situation, um, maybe something you think that we've learned as a, as a country, as a community, uh, maybe something that you hope we can take forward into the future? Well, I'm a um, OBGYN doctor prior to my role here at the health department. And um, I can tell you that I think families are closer now uh, than they used to be before. There, There is truly a lot more mental health and different things, you know, um, that everyone is battling. But I do think that family, uh, sometimes our priorities need to be straightened. And I think uh, this pandemic has prioritized a lot of uh, and straightened out people's priorities a little bit better. Um, so um, the reason I said I'm an obstetrician, so I really think that our birth rate will increase, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, which will be good. So that that's that's always a, a blessing to me. I, I would encourage women who are pregnant or about uh, to be pregnant or are thinking about pregnancy, please, please, please get vaccinated. It is very clear to the American College of OBGYN. Um, the maternal fetal specialists of America. I mean, every single OBGYN doctor that I know is really pushing this because the effects of COVID on a pregnancy, not only to the mother, but the newborn is is really devastating a lot of times. And so we really need to, to be aware of that. There have been no issues with the vaccine at all in pregnant, uh, in pregnant or pregnancy or breastfeeding women. And we also know that the baby is protected from the mother's antibodies as well. I'm uh, encouraged. I think that, you know, there are opportunities always with uh, challenges. And I think we've we've got a lot of opportunities. Um, I really believe in um, the millennials and the Gen Zs, I guess we call them now. And um, I think what really interests me when you look back at the great pandemic, the influenza pandemic, there were a lot of similar problems that we had then mm -hmm. that over these years never got resolved okay and so i'm hoping that what comes out of this is that a lot of really great thinkers will really think of some really great ways of of ways that we can learn so that the next pandemic going forward you know is different uh because of this how about you dr mcglick well i i think in terms of lessons learned and um that's positive there's a place for remote working. You know, I, I, I've talked to many friends and colleagues and just hearing different things that um, I think it set a new tone in terms of the efficiency and effectiveness that we can do with our workspace. Um, and I'm hoping that from this conversation that has been ongoing, that people see the importance of our public health uh, infrastructure and poor resources and develop them and look at how to standardize and make equitable across different communities that those kind of public health infrastructure. Um, I have seen in the last uh, few weeks, three different states uh, at the county level, 
three different standards in terms of the public health and it's because of the resources that are either not there or there. And that's impacted the contact tracing, their surveillance that they can do. Um, so I'm hoping that um, if nothing else, this is gonna uh, boost that up. And the last piece that as a pediatrician and as a primary care provider, I see a place for telehealth. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that uh, is a whole form that we never really tapped into. Um, but I, I see that that's a way forward to help um, families, especially um, uh, in terms of being able to access care, okay, um, but uh, uh, in ways that they previously had not been able to. There's going to be a day where each one of us wakes up and we'll, we realize we haven't thought about the pandemic in a week and, you know, we'll be like, oh, well, this is over. Um, so I'm wondering for, for, for each of y'all, what does the end look like? And, and, and really, what, what signals are you looking for that will show you that we're, we're there? I'm going to be looking at the vaccination rates um, mm. for the different age groups. Um, you know, we talked very early on about what, the, what does that target herd immunity look like? And I think um, that's where, you know, I, I think that's going to be a telltale sign as far as waking up and then realizing, oh, I could travel to this place without worrying as much uh, because I know that the community transmissions are going to be low across no matter what community I'm entering into. Mm -hmm. So that that's one of the things I'm hoping I wake up to. How about you, Dr. Rona? I could not agree with that more. I was going to say the same thing. Those vaccination rates, um, even though they're creeping up, boy, we watch them every day, don't we? And, and uh, you know, I, I just celebrate every time we get one percentage point up. Um, the other thing is, too, is that I look forward to the day when um, this vaccine is in the hands of medical providers across the board. Um, I think it needs to be treated like a, a vaccine preventable disease like every other vaccine preventable disease. And I think that will be a marker of uh, politics being less involved, which will be a good thing. Um, but I think that will um, kind of coincide, I hope, uh, with what you were talking about too, Dr. Amberbluck. Dr. Audrey Arona leads the Gwinnett, Newton, and Rockdale Health District. Dr. Lily Chang Emmergluck is a pediatric specialist at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Thanks again to both of them for joining me for this week's live event. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review that really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 